you know, I, I love uh, models. So if I have to build something or if I have to construct something, I love to see a picture of it or a model of it so that I can see. Sometimes I don't even need the directions if I can just see how it's done. And today, our passage in Matthew 9 is really a model. It's a picture for us to assess where we are as a church with where Jesus Christ would have us be. And we often wonder, what would we do if, if Jesus were here? What would Jesus do? How would he assess our church? Well, well Matthew has, has just laid out before us beautifully this idea of what ministry ought to look like. And I want to look at it today and, and kind of hold ourselves against it. You know, we've been seeing in Matthew from chapter 1, you know, those first four chapters where Matthew is really trying to hold Jesus out as the quintessential king. That's what he is. He has this unique heritage. He has this unique lineage to Abraham. I mean, he's virgin birth, even attacked by Satan early on, defeating him in the garden. You know, Jesus has authority. He's unique. And then we see in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 this unique teaching. I mean, nobody says the things that he, would, that he had said. I mean, if I were to say, I'm the light of the world, I mean, you'd run out of here. He said profound things that were displaying his authority in teaching. And then we've seen in 8 and 9 just this litany of miracle after miracle after miracle, 10 miracles, all showing he's got power and authority. And so we come up to the end of chapter 9, and it's kind of a hinge point. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, in the relay race where the, the baton is handed over? It's kind of a hinge point because Jesus has been modeling this ministry, and now he's going to delegate it to us. He, he's going to draw us into this ministry that he started. It's really incredible that Jesus Christ, coming from the Father, proclaiming a kingdom, is now giving us, if, if you will, the baton to begin to carry out. And so he's modeled it for us. And so Matthew's going to kind of give us a summary of his ministry, and then he's going to apply it to us. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. I want you to think of three things here. And what Matthew's going to do in the summary, as you read through these just few verses, you're going to see the nature of his ministry. And we're going to talk about that. What ought ministry to look like? And then the motivations, the heartbeat of his ministry. You know, what's fueling the thing? And, and then thirdly, how does he delegate it? How does he call us to engage in the work that he's done? So read with me, if you will, Matthew 9, 35. I'm going to read through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we're just going to look at these few verses, but, but kind of intently. We see first the nature of his ministry, and you see that in verse 35. Matthew's kind of given us that summary for him. He wants us to see that Jesus' ministry was not haphazard. It wasn't random. It was, it was processed. There was a, a plan that he had in place. It says that he went through all the cities and villages proclaiming the kingdom of God. He had a plan to keep ever expanding this preaching ministry out. And that says all the cities and villages in Galilee, which is in northern Israel, probably over 200 little cities and village and villages and hamlets. Now, he probably didn't go to every single one, but he would have gone to the synagogues and the bigger towns, and then he would have preached just in the streets and in the marketplace. 
But you just see this ever-increasing ministry. In fact, the tense of the Greek word indicates that it just kept going and going and going. So it wasn't a one or two type of ministry. He was constantly circling back, proclaiming the kingdom. And this is really the content of what he was preaching. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. You've heard this before. All the way back in chapter 4, verse 17, this is what he preached. In fact, Matthew records it for us. He says, from that time on, in other words, when Jesus began his ministry, he began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he's preaching. He's saying God's kingdom has come. In fact, the kingdom theme just runs throughout, right? In, in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you humble yourself, not poverty of spirit being finances, but really poverty of spirit of humility. Like, God, I need you. I don't have nothing to bring. I can't find acceptance with you on my own. And so this poverty of spirit leads us to what? The kingdom. He says the same thing in Matthew 5.20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter what? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus was about a kingdom, establishing a kingdom. You see it in chapter 6 when he tells us to pray, let the kingdom come in its fullness and power. Or at the end of chapter 6 when he says, seek first the kingdom. Jesus Christ is about the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom. But what does that mean? What does it mean about a gospel of a kingdom? Well, think about it. Gospel is simply good news, and the kingdom is the good news of God's kingdom. In other words, God now, in Christ, is coming to reign in power. That in Jesus, God is breaking into his world, and he's reclaiming it. He's restoring it. That in Christ's death and resurrection, he is going to regather people into his kingdom. Those that have scattered, those sheep that have run away, he's pulling them back in. Jesus has come to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son that he loves. It's incredibly good news. If you knew that you were out of a kingdom of joy and one has come to bring you to a kingdom of joy, that's great news. That's why it says the good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it with me. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God establishes his kingdom and he places Adam and Eve in it. He says, this is my kingdom. Live under my rule. Live under my good reign. He's a good king. Of course, in chapter 3, they go sideways. They don't want to live under his reign. They don't want to live in his yoke, and so they throw it off. The kingdom perishes, if you will. And then all of a sudden, God's promise comes in 3. no. The woman will have a son, and the son will ultimately be a king. You see it begin to materialize in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Abraham being called of God to, to kind of lead a people. They were like a kingdom, but they weren't a full kingdom. It was a picture of what was to come. And then, of course, the promise to Abraham is that he'll have a seed and the nations will be blessed. And then, of course, how does Matthew begin his gospel? Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the king. He's coming to bring a kingdom. This is really great news. In fact, Calvin said it this way. Calvin's a great reformer of the 16th century. He says, the gospel of the kingdom is God gathering to himself a people, sadly scattered, that he might reign in the midst of them for the express purpose of bestowing on all his people a perfect happiness. You're part of this kingdom. This is a good kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. Now, you see also part of his ministry, though, isn't just proclaiming a kingdom. You see the miracles he does. Matthew records healing every disease and every affliction. I mean, haven't we seen that? 
I mean, the paralysis, darkness, sickness, disease, blindness, even death. I mean, what is able to stop Jesus? Nothing. He heals everything, every disease, every affliction. Can you imagine? Every time Jesus goes to heal or touch, he heals them. Even death. Death has to loosen its grip when Jesus says to come forth. It's incredible that he would be so powerful. Now, why? What's the point of the miracles? You know, the miracles, as I expressed last week, of course they kind of give us a foretaste of heaven. They do. They give us, they give us what it will be like. Won't it be great? They give us a foretaste of heaven. But what the miracles also do is they authenticate that Jesus is the king, bringing a kingdom. I mean, Jesus himself said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know the kingdom has come to you. I mean, right? If I go walking down the street and I say, believe in me, I'm the Messiah, I'll be laughed off the street. But if I start raising dead people, if I start restoring sight to the blind, if if the deaf start hearing, the lame start walking, you're going to pay attention. In other words, the miracles are to authenticate Christ as king and the kingdom as a present reality. So this is his ministry, proclaiming the good news that God in unfathomable mercy has come to bring a son to establish a kingdom. And now God's reign, God's kingdom, his reigning over the hearts and minds of people have begun. And now it's the ingathering of the kingdom. So when you think about this right now, as you're kind of content, we're 2,000 years forward, what do we do about this? Well, well clearly you see here this cent- the central role of preaching and heralding and proclaiming. Now, our day and age, we're getting a little bit away from preaching, I think. Uh, the, the rhetoric, at least among the day, is, is you've got to introduce more videos, more skits, more humor, short sound bites, keep people's attention. This idea of a long message from a pulpit is kind of, it's finding fewer and fewer followers, or at least it's being proposed that way. But you notice that Jesus just preaches. Now, he does heal, and he does feed, but here's, I want you to see in what would be a parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus gives priority to preaching. Why? Because he thinks preaching actually is the most important thing you need. It's the best thing for you to learn about God. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 4, and you'll notice the similarity in language. He says this, when he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He doesn't feed them until later. The feeding passage of the 5,000 because they they were hungry and they were displaced and Jesus did want to minister to their physical needs, but it was after teaching them. He wanted to teach them many things because it's in the knowledge of Christ, it's in the leading into the kingdom that gives us the greatest joy. That is where our greatest strength comes. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Even Paul, at the end of his ministry, in the last verses in Acts of the Apostles, you know Paul got the message because he says this. Luke records... He says he lived there two years at his own expense. He was under house arrest. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. That's what I'm doing right now. It has continued on from that day. So understand the priority of preaching. Do you value preaching? I mean, do you come hungry 
to hear God's word explained. Now, we definitely try to avoid bad preaching, or as, as, as Charles Spurgeon would say, we don't want to fall into articulate snoring. We don't want to have bad preaching. But, but when the word's being explained to you, are you hungry? Do you understand that God has ordained as a primary means of grace this time to cultivate growth in your soul? And that apart from this, will you, will you not grow apart from preaching? I would say you would not grow as well. Or at least in the manner and the means in which God has ordained. I mean, you ought to be coming hungry, praying for me, praying for yourselves, praying for your brothers and sisters that you'd come hungry. You are harried and busied. I know that. And you are knee-deep in the things of this world. And then to pull up, to come here and sit and listen, it can put you to sleep. It's probably some of the quietest times you have all week. Nobody needs you. No phones are ringing, usually. (laughs) You've been very good about that. But, But this time is essential for your growth. Jesus felt it was central. But not just the method of delivery, the message that's being delivered. This gospel of the kingdom. You know, I feel as though I, on behalf of many pastors, need to repent of the non, to the non-Christian. Because the gospel of the kingdom, I think, has been fumbled by us many times. We've tried to boil the gospel down. We've succumbed to the... We've become guilty of reductionism. We're going to reduce the gospel to such simple details and minimal at that so that everybody can understand it. Our motivation has been okay, but I think our methodology hasn't been okay. We want to reduce the gospel to this. Listen, Jesus came and he died for your sins so you could go to heaven. And and we reduce the gospel to these really, really small sound bites. And, 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 And reductionism actually changes, even though you're intending to reduce a difficult message, Sometimes you reduce it so much it's not like the original. So if someone comes up to you, let me give you an example of reductionism. If I say, if someone says, you know what, marriage is all about communication. Well, it it, it is partly that. But isn't it so much more? I mean, anybody that's been married more than five years, we know it's so much more than just communication. It, It is communication, but it's much more than that. We don't want to reduce the gospel of the kingdom to simply Jesus died for my sins to get me to heaven. It is that, but it's so much more. It's so much more. I mean, that doesn't touch on the holiness of God, the glory of God. It doesn't talk about the communion of saints, the way that we are to be practicing the one another's. It's not, displaying the, it's not talking about displaying the wisdom of God through the church. I mean, there's so much about Christ. You heard Larry in his prayer at the end of the Ephesian passage. Everything is summed up in Christ. And yet we've reduced the gospel to this individualized means of getting out of hell. And no community. And Christ is an honor. I mean, what are we doing in heaven? Just rejoicing that we didn't go to the fire? No, we're rejoicing in the one that had saved us. I mean, summing up everything in Christ. When he finished reading that, I was just overwhelmed. Even, Tommy, you don't get the depth and the profundity of what this gospel is. In fact, uh, Kant Mather, you know, establishing Jesus, this kingdom as a treasure, will make your submission to him to be a pleasure. It will. In other words, this reign that he's preaching about, the gospel of the kingdom, it's really God reigning over your life. And and you find in Christ to be a pleasure, submission won't be a, a problem. But if you don't find the kingdom to be a pleasure, 
And submission is a burden. It's a yoke. You, you want to get rid of it. Do you feel that way? Do you love God's reign in your life? Do you love his word superintending over your life? Do you find joy knowing that he is your king and you want to submit to him? And that when you do fail, that you love repenting before him because you know he's gracious and kind? This is the mark of the Christian. The mark of the Christian loves God's reign over his life. If you're looking at the reign and the rule of God as a burden or a hardship, you want to step back and rethink the whole Christian faith. He's preaching the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is God reigning in our lives. Cotton Mather was a, a great preacher up in New England, and he, he said this. He says, your God reigns. He says, this is the great design of every Christian pe- preacher, to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of men. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what I'm doing. That's what Paul's doing. So that's the nature of his ministry. It's a proclamation ministry about the good news that God has come to reign in Christ and that Christ, through the gospel, saves us into the kingdom by faith. So you can't enter the kingdom by what you do. You're entering the kingdom as a move of humility, submitting yourself to God, grabbing hold of all that Christ has done for us, and we're drawn into the kingdom. But there's more to his ministry. Look at the heart of his ministry in verse 36. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This is something I I just want us to stop. Let me read it again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. They were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had been through all the towns. He had seen the people. He had seen the people struggling with physical illness, with relational problems, with divorce, with lust. He had seen all the harassness of the people. And he had compassion. He had, he had a sorrow over it. Now, when I speak about compassion, this Greek word here, I'm not speaking about, you know, when you're driving to the grocery store and you see the guy on the road, you know, God bless you, I need help. You kind of feel bad. You know you're going to the grocery store. He's hungry. You won't be. And there's a degree of guilt, and that may be proper, may be appropriate. I'm not sure. But, but, or other times you see at Christmas time the starving child on the television. Eh, you feel bad about that. You're going about to ready to go get your Christmas present. I'm not talking about those pangs of guilt or maybe even proper conviction of the spirit. This compassion is a word that speaks to the bowels of a person, the inside. So in the Hebrew mind, the heart was the decision center, and you make decisions from the heart. We don't, we, we've reversed it. In the Hebrew mind, the bowels were the emotion, the empathy. So when it says Jesus felt compassion, he's moved, sorrowful, sad. You know, it's like the feeling, it'd be analogous to, to like when I saw the, the Twin Towers go down. I still remember the room I was in, seeing it on television, and being so moved I had to sit down. I I was overwhelmed. The tragedy was profound. Or when you're with parents, you're with parents, and the doctor tells them that their child has cancer. It's like, you know, it's like a ball to the stomach. Jesus is feeling this tremendous compassion for the lost people, for those that are like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, it's, it's interesting, when you study Greek mythology, the pantheon, the, the, the host of the Greek gods, they were known for their apatheia, or their apathy. 
They didn't care about the people of the earth. They were distracted by them. They had fun with them sometimes as it pleased them. They weren't concerned. They weren't compassionate for the people. But Jesus Christ is compassionate for the lostness of the people. And you know he was compassionate because his father was compassionate. Let me remind you, God, the Old Testament, people say God seems so wrathful in vengeance. He identifies himself as compassionate. I love in the book of Jonah, you know, the kind of the reluctant prophet. He was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was a city of brutish people, mean-spirited, uh, just sexually indulgent, just, just a, a real mess of a group of people. And God sent Jonah to preach the gospel to them. Of course, Jonah didn't want to. He didn't want them to hear the gospel. And so God is chiding his reluctant prophet. He says this in Jonah 4.11. He says, And the Lord said, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? In other words, they were ignorant people. He says, Should I not pity them? God is a God that pities, that has compassion. This is what Jesus is saying. You're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep, and you know this, and Carol and I having had two sheep in our yard for two years in Austria. We know a few things about sheep, and I would say they're dumb and they're defenseless. And their danger, the danger to the sheep is really a danger from within and from without. From within, sheep are driven by the lust of their bellies. I mean, they'll eat clumps of grass right off the edge of a cliff. They'll eat clumps of grass right into poisonous stuff. They'll, they'll get tangled up in fencing just because there's a clump of grass on the other side, even though there's danger on the other side. They're silly. Not only are they dangerous from within because they're driven by their appetites. You begin to start to see the parallel with humans, right? Uh, then they're also dangerous from without because, I mean, they don't have any defensive strengths. I mean, they, 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 dogs or wolves can make short work of them. That's why I said they're harassed. They're helpless. That word for harass means filleted, and the word for helpless means to be knocked down. You can't get yourself up again. It's like sheep. They can be over. If they get in water, they get so heavy they sink like a stone. And he's saying that, that we're sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. And, and you notice, too, or I hope you do, implicit in this is a condemnation of the religious leadership who had failed the people. They weren't protecting. They weren't leading. You see this is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you one example. Ezekiel 34, he says, Son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel as a prophet. He says, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say to them, Thus says the Lord, O you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then the whole chapter is a castigation of these shepherds, of these leaders who had left the people. Why? They were harassed and helpless. Sheep need a shepherd, right? I mean, David, even a man after God's own heart, he says what? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What's that make David? A sheep. How about Isaiah 53? We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What are we? We're sheep. We need a shepherd, don't we? All of us need a shepherd. I'm thankful that God, in his grace, provided one that would never leave the sheep. In fact, there was a promise made to Micah, the prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus. And here's the promise he made. He says, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Who do you hear in that? Does it surprise you when you hear that? And then to know Jesus in his ministry stands up in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus expresses his compassion by sacrificing himself for our sins. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is how we enter the kingdom. Because the great shepherd who causes us to dwell secure, who will become our peace through his sacrifice. It's profound to think that Jesus would not regard a quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he would humble himself, becoming a shepherd and laying his life down for us. It's profound that we have such a shepherd. When he looks on the crowds, he sees they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so he's come to be our shepherd. Does this offend you to be called a sheep? Does it bother you to be called a sheep? This offends people. Because when you start out with they're dumb and they're defenseless, right away we get our backs up a little bit. We think, hey, I've cleaned myself up pretty well. I mean, we have the bootstrap mentality, right? I can pull myself up. God helped me a little bit, but I took it from there. You know, we don't like to be considered helpless, especially if you're far along the road as a Christian. They're kind of sheep. I'm different type of sheep. You know, we love to categorize ourselves. Does it offend you to know that you need Christ to be your shepherd? as much on the last day of your life as you did on the first day of your Christianity? Does it bother you to know you're a sheep? Or do you want to be a sheep? The Christian loves being a sheep. The Christian loves being a sheep of his pen. The Christian loves thinking about, he's my shepherd. He'll lead me beside quiet waters. He'll restore my soul. He'll walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff, they will comfort me. The Christian loves being a helpless sheep because of the one who shepherds us. Is that for you? Do you love being a sheep? I, I, I do, I, I really do. But being a sheep now means that you begin looking at people differently. So when he viewed the crowds and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, how do you view the crowds? When you look at the paper and you see another Miley Cyrus issue, what do you think then? Do you, do you look back with a degree of disdain like, what, what a fool she is? Or, 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 do you, or do you stand in a sort of Christian arrogance? You know, like, jeez, glad I'm not like that. If you're a sheep of this shepherd, you begin picking up the vision of the shepherd. That we don't succumb to indifference. When, when you read the paper and you see, even in this downward spiral that we may see, which many generations have seen like ours. But as you see this, is there compassion in your heart for the broken? I mean, do, do you stand back with the kind of that indifference of, well, that's just, they're, they're a different category. We do like that. We do like to peep people in categories. And because that way we can kind of find ourselves distant from them, usually better. Or again, do you succumb to that Christian arrogance that doesn't want to remember where you've come from, that you're a sheep as well. I, I think if we're sheep, we're going to look at these people and recognize, you know what they are? They're striving to find meaning and value in life apart from God. I did it for years. 
I'm striving to find meaning and value, my place, whether I try to climb a corporate ladder, whether I try to engage in relationships that are most fulfilling to me, whether I try to secure my identity built around what I have or who I know or the, or the progress I've made. It's people trying to live a life as image bearers apart from God. And they're going to succumb to every piece of idolatry available to them. Can you have compassion to them? I mean, can you be like Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians? I no longer look at people from a worldly point of view. Why? Because everybody's eternal. Everybody's eternal. And when you see the crowds, the sheep that are in Jesus' pen are going to mourn their compassionlessness. You can ask Carol after the sermon. I am not naturally a compassionate person. So I prayed. I remember every night we'd pray for Tom to have compassion. It was my my little prayer time with Carol. Give Tom compassion. Because it is not... Some people, I think, are, by God's grace, naturally empathetic. They do. They have an ability. I think women even more so than men, if I can generalize. But, But I think some of us are more empathetic Uh, Some of us are less so. But should we not pray for compassion? I mean, should we not repent of our compassionlessness? Should we not repent over the idea of kind of categorizing people and assign them, well, they can't be saved, or or they're beyond repair, Uh, or or just look at at the paper. I mean, what a mess. But have no compassion towards that. have Have no hurt for them. I mean, that's what Jesus does. He looked at us and he saw you and me as harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? He came and became our shepherd and he saved us. And so now we again are to be that same way. Can you even right now, God, give us grace to be compassionate. Would we be seen as a church by our compassion? I think a lot of people probably say no. They're eggheads or they're brainy or they're not so compassionate. Now, I don't want to beat ourselves up I just want to do a clear assessment and be honest about ourselves and say, if we need to grow in this, then let's ask the one who is the giver of all grace. And let's ask him for greater compassion. And you can start with me, that I'd be more compassionate. So you see Jesus here, Matthew is so clearly lining up. Here's the nature of his ministry. It's a proclamation ministry about the saving work of Jesus. And the heart of that ministry, what fuels that ministry, is compassion. It's, it's pity, not a condescending pity but a true brokenness over their lostness because they're hunting for things that you know they need, but they're going in all the wrong places. But then now, in 37 to 38, you see him turn to us. He's going to now draw us into this ministry. Look with me, if you will, in 37, he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. I love this part. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, so in the ministry, so we've got the baton now, we're about to hand it to the next runner, and he's saying to the disciples, and by extension us, he's saying the harvest is plentiful. In other words, what I have planned to draw forth from the world is colossal. It's huge. It's profound. There should be a sense of confidence welling up in you right now. Jesus Christ has said it will be plentiful. It's not going to be few in number. It's going to be plentiful. It's going to be many are going to come. They're going to come to the preaching of the gospel. We sang about it, actually, in our second song. It kind of reminds me of Revelation 7, where we read, After this, I looked, and behold, this is John speaking, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne 
and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So that's the assembly of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is a world from which God is drawing forth people out of it through the preaching of the gospel. And you see all those people around. And here's what they're shouting. In a loud voice, which is every music minister turns to this and says, this is why we sing loudly. In a loud voice they shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb, to the shepherd who laid down his life. Now you see him as a sheep. See, he's changing the metaphor. He's moving from shepherding and he's moving to farming. He's saying, now you will go into the harvest and it's going to be a plentiful harvest. You know it. What are we doing? It started out in Israel. 2,000 years later, we're speaking about it in America. It's amazing. You've seen it just go out. It's true. The harvest is plentiful. We look at China. We don't know about how many believers there are, but we know that with Mao Zedong, we're going to stamp out God, right? Sorry, didn't happen that way. Now they, uh, they estimate upwards of 80 million believers. 80 million believers out of a communistic country. Wow. The harvest is plentiful. He said it, and it's true. But then notice the workers are few, and we're kind of caught up by that. Really, you could say the worker was one. It was Jesus. There was no other worker at the time, only Jesus. And he says the workers are few, but you're going to see in verse 10.1, let me read it for you, in the very next chapter. This is why chapter divisions aren't always good. In chapter, one, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, he says, And he called to them, he called to him, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal, what? Every disease and every affliction. Exact same words as Jesus. He's giving the ministry to us, and he's saying the harvest is full, but the workers are few. But now there's a few more. There's 12. And by extension now, there's us. It's amazing that he calls us to do this great work. He starts with the disciples. They were recipients of the kingdom. Now they're agents of it. They were part of the harvest. Now they're harvesting. That's the way it works. Christians serve the non-Christians. We are the ones that preach the gospel to the non-Christian. But look at what he tells us to do. I've always loved this passage just because of its irony. He says... So you'd think, start preaching, or start teaching, or start defending, or start an apologetics class, or form committees, or form strategies. He says, he says this, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That's the instructions we have. The first instructions are to pray. Anybody can pray. You don't have to have the gift of teaching to pray. You don't have to have the gift of miracles or the gift of prophecy to pray. He says, therefore pray unto the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. That's the call for us. Now, we're going we're gonna to get more to the tasks later on as we move through chapter 10. But let's just start with this one, because this is enough. We have enough trouble praying. We don't, we don't know if we believe it. We feel guilty over it. And yet, God has designed prayer to precede the harvest. This is why we pray joyfully. Do you see what he's doing here? I want you to be kind of tickled by this weird, this weird way of saying it, if I can say that reverently. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm thinking, why the redundancy? If it's your harvest, just send out laborers in the harvest. I mean, right? It's your harvest. You're doing the harvesting. You're the king of the harvest. So just go ahead and send them out. Why are we having to pray to you to do what you've already said you're going to do? I don't know. No, I do know. I, I think he's drawing us in 
to be participants in this great and eternal work. This is a noble charge he is giving to us. I, in a way, it's like, it's like when, um, uh, when a husband and wife have a baby called procreation. You're creating with God, if you will. Right? You're not creating by yourselves. God is bringing forth life. He knits the child together in the womb. But you're creating with him. And, and you love that child that you have created with God for. Well, this is the same thing. You're participating with God in the advancement of his kingdom to the ends of the world. You get to participate. Can you imagine the, the fabric that heaven will be like? How your works and your words and your prayers have affected this, 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 and this. And can you imagine what a glorious day in heaven when we're all together and God begins to pull back the curtain and says, this is all the connectivity that took place. Do you think of networking here? Wait till you see it on the other side, that God has worked all these things to further his kingdom and he's drawn us into it. This is why we pray joyfully. You have a noble task to get on your knees and ask God, send workers to your field, bring in the harvest. Even if, you do, even if at this point right now you're not courageous about the gospel, you're a little timid about sharing Christ with people, so start with praying. Pray joyfully. But we also want to pray confidently. We know what's going to happen. He says the harvest will be plentiful. Jesus himself said in John 10, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. I love that. I mean, you talk about a declarative statement. I must do it. Everything he must do, he does. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. They're going to listen. In other words, it's going to be effective. Your preaching, the gospel going out, your prayers will be effective. Folks, this does not engender apathy. I think this ought to engender just an excitement to engage the task with great zealousness. We know, we know that it's going to work. We know that it's going to be effective. It's an incredibly kind gift of God to give us this encouragement. It's difficult to pray, but it's made more difficult when we forget the nobility of the task and the confidence that we have in it. And then last, I would just say, to, well, a couple things more. Pray compassionately, because I think we do need to pray for compassion for ourselves. I think if we look at the crowds and we don't look at them with compassion, our prayers are, minim- are going to be minimized. If we look at people and say they're beyond God's help, or if we look at people and say, God's tried enough with them. So many of us are ready to write ourselves or others off. I hear it out of the voice of people, and I see it in the attitudes of people. We just think people, and I struggle with the same thing sometimes. I do. I'm like, should I really pray? And then I fall back on that. Well, you don't want to you know, throw pearls to swines. I think that's an overworked verse. I think we've got to do a lot more work before we pull that one out to justify not doing what he told us to do. But, but, but do you fall into that? He can't really save me. I keep succumbing to the same sin. God, give me compassion for the broken. Give me compassion for the shepherd without, for the sheep without the shepherd. But then last, I would just say for us as a church, corporately, what do we do? Let's pray for ourselves to have, A, a zeal for the gospel. Let's have a zeal for the gospel of this kingdom. Let's pray that we really do begin to grasp in earnest this idea that we are part of an eternal kingdom of which Jesus Christ is summing up all things in himself not in us, in himself. And let's pray for that confidence to begin to move. We're not just to pray for missionaries and pastors. If you were to limit this to just pray for missionaries and pastors, I think you'd be over-reducing the passage. I think we're to pray for ourselves and our neighbors that wherever you are in life, 
that you're going to be looking for opportunities to engage the harvest personally, individually in your own life, but also as a church. You know, we have this next month, we have the, um, the ministry outreach to the Fox Road Elementary. So we're gathering together to feed the teachers breakfast. Teachers are overworked, they're underpaid, they're doing a service to the community, regardless of what you think about the educational system, they're doing a service. We're doing a kindness to them because God has done a tremendous kindness to us. That's an opportunity. It's in your bulletin. I would ask you to consider that. That's an opportunity for you to engage in the harvest. You're not preaching the gospel. You're just making eggs and bacon. But you're doing a kindness that's going to lay the groundwork for the preaching of the gospel. We have the Clifton, New Jersey trip coming up. That's supporting the church plant right outside of uh, New York City. We want to take about 10 people up there if we can. What we're doing is we're supporting the church by going and encouraging them. And as they go out and work in the harvest, but we're also going up there to help them in a fair that's kind of a publicity deal that all the different organizations go up there and they have a fair and they're trying to introduce themselves to the community. We're going to help them with that. Last week, Nick was preaching in Haiti, encouraging the pastors. We want to pray for the Haitian church. Why? Because they're going out in the harvest down there. We want to pray for the seeds that we've sown down there. Next week, a number of us are going to go to Ecuador, training the pastors in, the, in, the, um, in Ecuador, and letting them pray, God, work among the harvest down there. So we have much to be praying about and much to be participating in. So I'd ask you to consider that. What are your gifts and what are your strengths and where can you begin? You can begin with prayer, but then where can you find it materialized in the ministries of this church? So this is a great passage. We start out with Jesus giving us kind of the nature of the ministry. It's a a proclamation ministry about the goodness of the kingdom. And then you see the motivation of the ministry, the compassion that fuels our effort. And then you see it outworking. You see the delegation of the baton being handed to us. And what are we called to do? Just pray. Let's pray. So let's do that right now. We have a few minutes after this sermon to pray. I would ask you to pray in light of the word that's been preached. I would ask you to pray with a loud voice, not praying down to the floor. We can't hear you, and it's difficult agreeing with you. And so just pray out, but pray briefly, because there's a number of people that want to. And this is kind of, sometimes it's a bit awkward to pray out loud like this. You feel a bit intimidated, like people are going to judge you. Just put that to death, would you? I don't care if you stammer out a prayer. If you have a compassion for the lost, then, then pray. And, um, but pray briefly that others may pray. This is really a picture of what we're going to be doing in heaven. So let's get some practice here. I'm going to start and then an elder will close in just a minute. Father, thank you for the grace you've given to us in your great son, our good shepherd. Thank you that he was willing and had the authority to lay down his life for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Overwhelm us with your mercy, I pray in the name of Jesus.